today on Edge Effects. Even though ski wax is a minor source of contamination on a global level, it's a major source on a local level if you're thinking about a wintertime recreation area. Also, this is just one piece of the puzzle. The use of ski wax is potentially an easy way for people to get exposed. Claire Sullivan speaks with Gail Carlson, assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program and director of the Buck Lab for Climate and Environment at Colby College. They discuss the forever chemicals known as PFAS used in ski wax, the ways these chemicals persist in the environment, and the ongoing processes to regulate them. Great. So this is Claire Sullivan. My name is Gail Carlson. Gail, thank you so much for joining us today on EdgeFX to talk about your work. It's a pleasure. Welcome. Cross-country skiing or Nordic skiing is having a bit of a moment this year, as is the case with many other types of outdoor recreation during the pandemic. Participation numbers are way up, at least in Wisconsin. We've seen record numbers of skiers on the trails, buying trail passes, and buying cross-country skiing gear. So cross-country skiing is sometimes called a silent sport, and I think a lot of skiers think about it as a relatively low-impact form of outdoor recreation and a way to spend time in the wilderness, in nature. And you have a really interesting recent study that focused on a very specific and a very lasting impact from cross-country skiing based on ski wax. So I was curious to hear how you as an environmental studies professor, what brought you to what I imagine is the relatively small field of academic inquiry into cross-country skiing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have taught a course in the environmental studies program at Colby College for many years called the Environment and Human Health. And I've been teaching about the health impacts of toxic chemicals in the environment, including the chemicals that are in ski wax, the so-called forever chemicals or PFAS, PFAS chemicals. And over the years, I'd had a number of students from the Colby Nordic Ski Team in my class, and that they, of course, were quite interested and concerned. And finally, one of those students took me up on an offer to go and actually do some environmental testing at our local cross-country ski place, which is this beautiful place in town called Quarry Road Trails. And uh, so we ended up doing this study. Also, my son was a competitive middle school and high school Nordic skier here in central Maine. And I was always so concerned because his team and the coaches would be in the waxing shed, uh, putting fluoro waxes on the skis. And I tried to talk to them about the dangers of it. But of course, you have a competitive advantage when you use these types of skis. I didn't allow my son to go into the wax shed or to wax his skis at Quarry Road. I made him come home and wax his skis in our shed with non-fluoro waxes. So this is been, you know, an issue that's been really important to me for a long time. And also just thinking about cross-country skiing as a sport, you're right, it's silent, it's beautiful, it gets you out in nature in the winter, it's so good for you, it's such a great aerobic sport, but yet it was having this impact on some of these beautiful, beautiful places where we go skiing, and it was something that I really wanted to pursue. It's worth noting that it's not just cross-country skiing, it's also downhill skiing, snowboarding. Anytime you're using skis and snowboards, if you're using fluoro waxes, you are potentially introducing contamination into the environment. Since competitive cross-country skiing involves applying these waxes all the time and then you're immediately on the snow, it's a significant source of contamination. That's a really interesting pathway to this topic. So these waxes are used throughout winter sports in downhill skiing and snowboarding and cross-country skiing. Can you talk a little bit about the way a cross-country skier will use a fluoro-based wax? Sure. So there are many types of ski waxes, and they can be made out of different chemical components, but the fluorinated chemicals are very slippery chemicals that will basically offer some level of water resistance to whatever they're added to. It's not just ski wax, of course. And especially for freestyle skiing, it actually will keep the melted snow off the bottom of the ski and basically allows for a very slippery, very fast race. And so floral waxes have really made a difference in terms of competitive performance compared to hydrocarbon waxes. 
for example. But the industry and competitive sports are really moving away from floral waxes, which is a good part of this particular story. It's probably worth mentioning that PFAS chemicals are a large family of chemicals. Uh, There's over 4,000 of them, many of which we know very little about. And they tend to have the property of conferring water resistance, grease resistance, stain resistance, non-stick properties to whatever they're added to. And so their use in ski wax is just another of those types of applications of that property. But you see PFAS chemicals in things like Teflon and other nonstick coatings on pans, uh, Gore-Tex treatments of outdoor outerwear and similar types of water-resistant coatings and stain-resistant treatments of things like carpets or furniture upholstery. Those are some of the well-known uses of PFAS in consumer products. And then, of course, there are many, many industrial applications as well. So finding slippery water-resistant chemicals to put on the bottom of your skis, it makes sense to think about this family of PFAS chemicals. And if they were benign, it would be great and we could all ski nice and fast. The problem is they're some of the most hazardous chemicals out there. And these are chemicals that we're interacting with throughout our everyday lives. They're in our consumer products, our houses, our industrial processes. Yes. And actually, they're in our drinking water and in our food supply because they have been used so widely in industry without controls on emissions into the environment, you know, disposal processes, some of the manufacturing processes, and they are able to travel pretty widely. So you see contamination pretty far from sites of production because they can travel in air currents and things like that. And they're highly persistent. The thing that is really dangerous about PFAS is how persistent they are in the environment. You know, they have very, very long half-lives, you know, on the order of decades or more. And precisely the properties that make them great, durable, stain or water-resistant treatments makes them very dangerous as environmental contaminants. And it's basically impossible to regulate them because they escape and travel all over the world. They move through the environment very readily and they are so extraordinarily persistent. And then, of course, we interact with them because they are bioaccumulative, which means that they build up in uh, living organisms, including plants, animals, wildlife, and people. And the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, conducts regular body burden studies of of Americans. And they've shown that every American basically has measurable levels of PFAS in their blood. And then the other property that's particularly dangerous is how toxic they are. They are linked to all kinds of adverse health impacts. So you have this triple whammy of uh, persistence, bioaccumulativeness, and uh, toxicity that make them really dangerous and inadvertently result in us, as you said, interacting with them in our daily lives. So it sounds like these chemicals are widely used and they've been historically used in the U.S. in these many different ways for decades, correct? Yes, they've been used since, you know, the early 1950s, long before we had environmental regulations or were really thinking about the potentially adverse effects of chemical contamination in the environment. We were mostly focused on better living through chemistry and the performance of these chemicals and the ways that they would make our lives better because we had a nonstick pan or we had a waterproof jacket. So you talked about this a little with your son's ski team, but what skiers both in freestyle and classic cross-country skiing will do is iron on glide waxes onto their skis to achieve the motion and speed that you want in cross-country skiing. And so in the 80s, is that correct that these were brought into widespread use? Sometime in the 1970s or 80s, I'm not sure the exact date, more recently than, say, Teflon or Scotchgard, but they've been in use for decades. So there's been plenty of time for skiing itself to be a significant contributor to some of the contamination in the environment, especially localized contamination like we saw at ski areas. Your study takes this context of ski wax use and it looks at two big questions. One is 
how much of those fluorocarbons, those PFAS, do you see in the snow in a couple different locations immediately after a race? And then you come back to the site several months later after the snow is gone to get at this question of persistence and mobility and look at how these chemicals are persisting in the soil after the snow is gone and then how they've moved in a few different locations through the waterway. What I think was really interesting about that is we think a lot about how our different land uses are impacting landscapes and those have local and global impacts and your study design was so unique for the use case and the location that you chose. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your study site and how you developed your methods to be applicable to this very specific land use of Nordic ski racing. Yes, so the site was a logical choice because it is the place in our town of Waterville, Maine, where a lot of recreational and competitive Nordic skiing happens. So it made sense to be there. And as I mentioned, I've had a number of members of the Colby Nordic ski team in my class, so they know about it. And one of the racers, one of the athletes, Skylar Tupper, who was an environmental studies major and graduated last year, she was interested in actually doing some of this testing. So she raced in the race that immediately preceded our sample collecting and then took off all of her, you know, Gore-Tex laden gear and put on different clothes. And we went around and collected soil and water samples. This is a place that has been developed by the city and is used by members of the community, as well as competitive ski teams around the state and Colby athletes and students and faculty and staff. It's a beautiful place. It used to be a rock quarry and they've done a fantastic job of developing it into a multi-use recreational area. So people love this place. And, you know, it was hard for me to think about telling a story about contamination there because, of course, it's such a beloved place. And in the pandemic, it's just been a place where so many people have been able to be outside and to snowshoe and to ski and to walk around. So it's a very special place, but it was vulnerable to contamination. So it was really important to me to see what was happening there because that was the place that I knew that I loved where my son skied, where the Colby team skied, where I skied. Yeah, and as you described it, I think this is true of many sites that are used for cross-country skiing, which is used just part of the year, that they're frequently multi-use sites where a place that might host ski races in the winter has kids hiking in the summer or be a mountain bike trail in the summer. So people are interacting with that landscape in many different ways. They are. And that's one of the beauties of that place is that no matter what you're interested in, if you want to be outside, you can probably do any number of fun activities out there. So they have rock climbing and ice climbing and fat tire biking, mountain biking in the summer. There's a trail running road race series. People bring their horses out there. There's dog sledding. My son did some paintball biathlons out there. And of course, people bring their dogs and they walk around. It's an absolutely beautiful beautiful place. A stream that runs through town goes right along there. There's beautiful stands of hemlock trees and the hardwoods that we have out here, beautiful maples in the fall. There's elevation. There's a ridge at the top of it that goes kind of along one edge, which makes it really exciting for skiing, of course. But it's also a place where you can climb up to the top and just see views that you don't see otherwise in town. It's really a beautiful place and a place that is used so widely by so many people in the community. So we were really careful when we designed the study to make sure that the city knew and the ski teams knew that we were doing this. And this really was a collaboration with the Colby Nordic Ski Team. And its coach, Tracy Cody, was very, very supportive and helpful in this study. And it was actually really fun to do a collaborative research project between academics and athletics. I thought that was a really extremely unique aspect of the study. A lot of people who've cross-country skied maybe skied on even waxless skis and might not use these fluoro skis in their typical ski where they go out with a couple people or by themselves. And your study takes place in a different environment where you have a race where everyone's on skis with wax and you have hundreds of skiers in this very small area. And so So 
can you tell us a little bit about how directly collaborating with an athletics department and having an athlete as your co-author shaped the way you designed your methods? It was very helpful to have this collaboration and to understand, you know, I needed to know which race was going to be using floral waxes. That's pretty basic. So that was really helpful. The coach and the athletes, they really understand how waxing happens. They have all the stories. They know who's doing the waxing and where they're doing it. And of course, most people understand the risks of floral waxes these days, certainly if they're competitive racers. And the coach is very interested in getting rid of floral waxes. She's been very supportive of that movement, has been really active there. And again, with collegiate racing, moving away from floral waxes, that's really a success story. But thinking about how we designed our study... We rigged the system so that we knew that there was floral wax being used and we wanted to see what the impact was. And we found extraordinary contamination of snow at the start line of the race when the skiers are on their freshly waxed skis and they're rubbing them in the snow and then they're starting off full force in the race. And that contamination doesn't just affect these collegiate racers. It affects everyone because these chemicals don't go away. So once they're in the snow, they're in the snow until they melt and then they either move with meltwater through the environment or they may deposit in the soil underneath. So it really affects everyone. And as a parent who watched so many kids out there over the years, just rolling around in the snow and eating the snow and being in contact with the snow, even though this particular contamination was associated with floral wax use in a collegiate race, it's it affects everyone. And of course, it's just one more time when contamination was introduced on top of all the other races that had occurred at Quarry Road. And so there's, you know, there's this cumulative effect of introduction of these chemicals into this particular place. So it really is kind of a universal story for everyone. So I felt that it was important to tell. And I also tried really hard to make sure that we were saying that it wasn't anything about this particular place that made it more contaminated than other places or that that the city was guilty of anything because of this contamination. This is inevitable, right? Anytime you're using these chemicals, you're going to introduce them into the environment. Any ski area where floral waxes were being used or are still being used, which is pretty much everywhere, is going to have this contamination. It's just that we haven't actually tested most places. So this was really the first time that an American place that does Nordic skiing was actually tested. And we found such extraordinary contamination at the start line that even the laboratory that did the testing for us was shocked that the numbers were so high in these aqueous, these water-based samples of melted snow. They were like, what are we testing here? What is going on? They were surprised at how high the levels of fluorinated chemicals were. And based on other people's studies of which fluorochemicals are in ski wax, we could determine that basically the fingerprint of the PFAS chemicals we found matched what is known to be in ski wax. So we are very confident saying, yes, it was the ski wax that contributed to the snow contamination. And when we tested snow that was farther along the race course, a few kilometers in, we actually found much, much, much lower levels. So we could also show that most of the ski wax appears to be uh, rubbing off the skis in the early part of the race, which is something that the athletes could probably tell me about anecdotally. They could feel when they had less wax on their skis and we were able to determine that. And then you're right, we also were interested in the question of broader contamination of the landscape. So we had to wait until the ground thawed and the snow stopped, which is pretty late here in central Maine. So in May, we went out and collected soil at the same sites where we had collected snow and were able to determine that where there was the most snow contamination, we could also detect soil contamination. And then one of the most worrying things that we found is that there's some shallow groundwater out out there. And we found really quite high levels of mostly some of the shorter chain chemicals that we know can move pretty readily through soil and water. And we know that many of them are in ski wax. And we found a lot of contamination of the groundwater there. So that's something that I'm really interested in following up with. It's something that I wanted to make sure that the people out at Quarry Road knew about. There's a shallow well that's been dug out there and they have the water coming into a sink in a maintenance shed and it's non-potable water and there's a big sign, but it's still there available for use. People can wash their hands with it or drink it if they don't know to not drink it. And I just wanted people to know that they shouldn't be doing that because there's high levels of contamination there in that water. So that's something we'll go back and look at. 
Could you tell us a little bit about whether we have a good understanding of this property of toxicity in the environment and in human bodies, how well that property is understood? So with respect to PFAS, we have both a science gap and a regulation gap. There's so much that we don't know about the environmental properties and certainly the toxicity of PFAS chemicals. And remember that there are over 4,000 of them. We don't even know where they all are produced or manufactured and what uses they are put to. We tend to understudy the health impacts of chemicals, partly because our regulatory mechanism, which is the Toxic Substances Control Act in the United States, does not require safety testing or toxicity testing for most chemicals. And even for newer chemicals where they do require some testing, it's pretty minimal. So it certainly wouldn't be enough where you could actually find out what are some of the reproductive impacts, what are some of the impacts on the human immune system, for example. We just don't require that. So most of the work on the toxicity of these chemicals have come from highly exposed populations that lived adjacent to manufacturing centers. And two big groups that have been studied are people who have lived near a DuPont manufacturing plant in West Virginia that was making Teflon and the precursor chemical for Teflon, which is PFOA, also known as C8. And there was so much drinking water contamination that there are tens of thousands of people who were drinking contaminated drinking water at fairly high levels. And then another study group is in Minnesota near a 3M plant and its waste dump sites. And also you have widespread drinking water contamination. And that was from another chemical called PFOS, another PFAS. So based on health studies of these highly exposed populations, we have identified a set of health impacts of exposure to just these two chemicals. And again, we use many, many more than just these two, but it's helped us start to understand the magnitude of the problem. So the best evidence we have for health impacts comes from something called the C8 health study in the area around the DuPont plant in West Virginia. And there were 70,000 Americans who had contaminated drinking water and they were studied and they linked exposure to PFOA to a number of health outcomes, including several forms of cancer and ulcerative colitis and high cholesterol and preeclampsia in pregnant women. And then subsequent studies have linked it to other forms of hormonal disruptions, especially in children, immune suppression. And some of you may have seen some of the headlines that have emerged in the context of the pandemic, because it turns out people with high levels of PFAS in their blood have immune suppression, which could make them more susceptible to COVID-19. And also they mount less effective immune responses to certain vaccines. So also potentially an issue in the current pandemic. So we're starting to learn more and more about the health effects of PFAS, but of course we have thousands of them. There just aren't enough people, aren't enough resources to look individually at 4,000 chemicals and figure out what they're doing in the human body. So we have a big gap. And to date, we've also had this regulatory gap where we basically allowed people to manufacture, use, and dispose of PFAS pretty much without much regulation for decades. And now we're faced with a situation, again, where it's almost unregulated because it's everywhere. But U.S. states are stepping up and starting to do some things as well as the European Union and the international community in the context of an international treaty that we have on persistent organic pollutants called the Stockholm Convention. But only those two PFAS that I just mentioned are included there. And there's so many more that need to be regulated. So PFAS as a term is an umbrella term that describes a large family of chemicals? Yes, the full name is per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Um, <laughs> and there's a variety of chemistries involved there. There are something like 4,700 chemicals in this family. They all have the property of having carbon-fluorine bonds in them. And those are extraordinarily stable bonds and confer some of the properties of persistence, bioaccumulation, and toxicity because of that. I don't want to get too much into the chemistry, but we, industry, you know, in the post-World War II era when synthetic chemistry really emerged and the petrochemical industry really exploded, we really embraced 
what's called organohalogen chemistry. If you think back to what Rachel Carson was writing about in Silent Spring, those pesticide chemicals, those are all organochlorines. And again, a carbon-chlorine bond has similar properties as a carbon-fluorine bond, although the carbon-fluorine bond makes things even more persistent. We have had a family of organobromines. Those are some of the flame retardant chemicals that we have used widely and turn out to also be persistent, bioaccumulative and toxic. And then this large family of fluorinated chemicals. So Carson's Silent Spring was really a call for us to better understand how chemicals bioaccumulate and how they move throughout the landscape. And we understand a little about the exposure of just a few of these chemicals. Is there much work on the mobility side, understanding how it moves through different ecological systems and soils and waterways? That's an excellent question, and it's one that's really timely. What we are starting to realize is that PFAS chemicals, especially the smaller ones, are extraordinarily mobile in the environment. So you produce them, use them, dispose of them in one location, and they can really move quite readily through soil, through water. And then many of them, as I mentioned, also can move through the air and can actually be uh, transported and deposited hundreds, even thousands of miles away from where they're produced. So from a regulatory standpoint, especially in Europe, a chemical being designated as a persistent bioaccumulative and toxic substance is enough of a trigger to actually start regulating it, which is good news. And what they're adding right now to that designation is mobility. So if something is extraordinarily mobile through the environment, it may actually trigger regulation, even if we don't know very much about its toxicity. Is that similar in the U.S. or is the U.S. treated this differently? No, it's very different in the U.S. at the federal level. So as I mentioned, our chemicals regulation is pretty weak, the Toxic Substances Control Act. But fortunately, many U.S. states have stepped up and filled in that regulatory gap. And you'll see with a lot of U.S. state chemical regulations that they actually do set up systems where something being persistent or bioaccumulative or toxic actually isn't a trigger for action, you know, in a much more precautionary way than the federal government where they're much more reactionary after we know something about a chemical or after there's been an accident or after we know that it's built up in the human body, we might start taking action. Although again, our law is pretty weak and the scientific and legal standards for action are just really high. So it makes it difficult to actually regulate. It's much easier to regulate chemicals under the European system than it is in the U.S. But for example, I'm here in the state of Maine, and two years ago, Maine's legislature actually banned PFAS in food packaging materials, and they banned them all as a class, which is something that would never happen at the federal level. And other states have done that as well. Two years before that, Maine actually banned all brominated flame retardants that were added to furniture foam for furniture sold in Maine. So at the state level, there are ways that more aggressive action can be taken and action can be taken in the absence of scientific proof that every sick person is sick because they were exposed to this particular chemical. And of course, that's not tenable anyway, because no one is exposed to only one chemical. So if we're just talking about PFAS, there are many PFAS in our drinking water, for example. And that's just one family of chemicals. Add all the other thousands of chemicals that we use in our economy, in our manufacturing, and you've got quite a broad suite of chemicals that are in our bodies. So it's really impossible to study the effects on humans of just one chemical as a requirement for regulation. We really need to think in different ways about how we regulate these things. And many scientists are calling for actually banning PFAS as a class, except for what is referred to as essential uses of the chemicals, where a PFAS chemical is used in a particular process where there is no substitute. But even for those so-called essential uses, it's not set in stone. And the idea is that you would only use that PFAS chemical or whichever chemical you're talking about as long as you didn't have a substitute, but that we should be working to find safer alternatives for those chemicals. So yes, there is definitely a call at the international level to, you know, among all the leading environmental health scientists to ban PFAS as a class. 
Chemical policy sounds like it's happening in very different ways at different scales where international policy is being driven by different things than U.S. federal policy and then U.S. state policy is, again, different. So where do you see your science fitting in in that like fragmented policy landscape? Yeah, that's an excellent question. First of all, the study that we did, which showed that there is direct contamination of the environment when these floral waxes are used in a competitive setting outdoors, the biggest impact is really to try to compel people to restrict the use of floral waxes so that we don't have future contamination. Fortunately, even before we initiated our study, this is where the ski industry was moving and the International Ski Federation had already announced a restriction on floral waxes in competitions that was due to take effect this winter, but it's been delayed. And at Quarry Road, the place where we tested in town, they're not using floral waxes now for collegiate races or high school races, which is good. And the U.S. Ski and Snowboard, they also announced uh, restrictions on the use of floral waxes. So that's really the biggest reason to do this type of research is to show that this contamination occurs and that we need to figure out how to stop it. And it's really easy to prevent future contamination by just stopping the use of these waxes, which is fortunate for this particular source of exposure and contamination. But when we're talking, of course, at a large scale about the production of precursors for Teflon, that's a much bigger issue or you know, whichever PFAS application we're talking about. Fortunately, it appears that the ski industry is moving away from fluoro and there are advances in the ski wax industry looking at different types of feedstocks for waxes, making waxes out of different types of materials and safer materials. So that's all really, really good. We're hoping to go back and test the same site now that there are some of these floral wax restrictions in place and see if we can document less contamination or different types of contamination, where instead of it being a direct exposure because the wax is rubbing on the skis you know, and contaminating the snow, is there some sort of long-term contamination that we can still detect, say, of the groundwater out there? which we did find when we did our initial study. So there's more to do there. I think that's a really neat illustration. Chemical policy sounds so big, but it's also so fragmented because it shouldn't be up to Quarry Road to be the innovator. Right. In a sense, they're not. There are a lot, you know, this is where the industry is moving. But, and really, even though ski wax is minor source of contamination on a global level, it's a major source on a local level. If you're thinking about a wintertime recreation area. Also, this is just one piece of the puzzle. The use of ski wax is potentially an easy way for people to get exposed. So thinking about restricting this so that people aren't directly touching these waxes and ironing them on in a shed and breathing in the fumes and being out with their kids in an area where there's contaminated snow because floral waxes were used and the kids are rolling around in the snow or eating the snow. This is an area that I think can highlight how easy it is for people to get exposed and the importance of regulation. So again, even though it's regulating floral ski waxes is not going to drastically reduce the amount of global PFAS out there. It is an important example that we can use to really spur on regulatory action and some of these industrial responses like the ski wax bodies saying no more floral waxes. In the study, you saw very high local levels of contamination. And I wondered if that way of using PFAS is using a higher concentration of PFAS. It's certainly being handled directly. It's coming off on the snow. So it seemed like it could be a much higher risk way of interacting with the chemical than, say, a Teflon pan or something, for instance. That's a great question, and it's difficult to compare one use of PFAS in a consumer product with another in terms of exposure, but it is possible that the use of fluorinated ski wax is actually a major source of exposure. And there are a number of different fluorinated products, including liquid ski waxes that are basically pure 
fluorocarbon. So in that case, yes, if you're putting it on a ski, you're potentially exposed to a very high concentration of a fluorinated product. Whereas perhaps if you're wearing a Gore-Tex jacket, the Gore-Tex is not just sloughing off your jacket all the time. And although, you know, it's also another source of contamination. It's interesting because those intersect because you have so much high performance outerwear that people wear in the wintertime to go skiing. And a lot of that is water resistant and has Gore-Tex coatings or other types of water resistant coatings. So there's an intersection there. Let's step back to the waxing shed that you mentioned on your son's high school team and talk a little bit about the way the fluorinated wax is applied and that very specific application in the context of a chemical that you've described as being toxic, mobile, and persistent. So what I think surprised the industry were a couple of studies that came out about a decade ago that looked at the body burdens of cross-country ski wax technicians that were working for the teams in Norway and Sweden. And what they found is that the people who were actually applying the waxes to the skis had extraordinarily high body burdens. So coaches and ski wax technicians are at really high risk. And I was concerned when my son was skiing that the kids were also applying applying these waxes or were in the shed when the waxes were being applied, which is why I tried to raise the alarm. And I also didn't allow my son to do these activities. So historically, this waxing would go on indoors. And before people really understood the hazards, wax technicians might have been completely unprotected. Now you pretty much have to wear a respirator. What you see is a lot of waxing actually occurs outside now where outdoor air can dilute the fumes. But glide waxes historically were ironed onto the bottom of the ski. So that would create volatile fumes, which was probably the main source of exposure of these wax technicians. The year that we did our study, ironing on these glide waxes was prohibited. So we know the skiers were still using fluoro glide waxes in the race that preceded our testing, but they were not ironed on. So it could be that actually in those races, the ski waxes actually were able to rub off the ski and absorb onto the snow more readily than in past years where they may have been ironed on. We don't know that for sure, but they were trying to minimize the risks to the people applying the ski waxes for these collegiate races by restricting the use of ironing. Quarry Road sounds like a lot of other landscapes that would be seeing this kind of use, but I imagine that also these chemicals could behave differently in different landscapes and different ecosystems, or there may be more vulnerability if there's different uses around those areas. Do, is that something you're interested in with your future work to look at whether these highly localized uses are having different impacts? I think it would be very interesting to go back and test at Quarry Road and then maybe to compare it with other similar types of sites. And in my paper, I also tried to talk about how it compared or contrasted with other places where there is soil contamination by PFAS chemicals that we know about because our State Department of Environmental Protection is doing some testing and making that information publicly available. What some of those differences are, different landscapes have different impacts based on the types of uses of PFAS chemicals. So most places, aren't directly impacted by ski wax, for example. But many places, including in Maine and all over the world, have been impacted by the use of a particular type of firefighting foam that is made of PFAS chemicals. And it's very useful in fuel fires. So it was very commonly used at airports and military bases, air bases, and training sites for firefighters, but also actual use of these foams to fight fires where there were fuels, say aviation fuels, for example. contamination is going to look very different at a place like that or in adjacent places that are impacted by that contamination than, say, you know, a local ski place or a recreational area. But then you also have this firefighting foam and, you know, the production of a lot of these PFAS chemicals have actually contributed PFAS to the environment that moves. So there are local sources and there are global sources. There are local impacts and global impacts. Some of the background soil contamination we found at Quarry Road in soil that shouldn't have been directly impacted by the use of the ski wax because it was off the trails and it was way above everything else up on the ridge. So you might not have had snow melt up there. 
this was what you intended as your control in the It was a control. And we still found, you know, detectable levels of PFOS, which is a very prominent global contaminant. And so is even Quarry Road being impacted by both local and global sources of these chemicals? Probably. And then, you know, an individual landscape or an individual location will be differently affected depending upon the types of soils or the types of water, groundwater, surface waters. These chemicals are pretty persistent, so they're unlikely to break down in with UV light or with microbes or things like that. And they do build up in plants and they build up in wildlife. So that's sort of beyond the scope of my work, but it would be really interesting to see if maybe some of the vegetation at Quarry Road or another site or some of the wildlife actually also have body burdens. We we absolutely would expect that that would be the case, just like humans have body burdens. There's so many ways that these chemicals impact the environment, and some of them are unique, and then some of them are really kind of global and universal. The local contamination that you studied sounds like it is specific to this use of Quarry Road. The levels of contaminants that you found were of such an unprecedented level that your lab had never seen samples that high. How do you see the ski wax as a source relative to these incredibly widespread PFAS and some of the other sites that you've mentioned? How does this fit into the bigger picture of PFAS? as and forever chemical contamination in our global environment. So that's an excellent question. Ski wax use is a source of contamination, definitely. And it is likely to some degree global because, again, these chemicals don't break down, so they got to go somewhere. But we certainly have also documented highly localized effects of the use of ski wax. Most of the world is not using fluorinated ski waxes because they're not skiing because there's no snow. So in a global sense, it's a minor use of fluorocarbons compared to these firefighting foams, these consumer product treatments that we know about, and then all the industrial applications that we don't even think about or know about. These are very, very high volume use chemicals, and they're produced, used, and disposed of all over the world. So yes, some of these big time industrial processes that manufacture them and that use them and dispose of them are the big global sources. What I think is really exciting that you've referred to is that there's a way to have kind of actionable change and they've already seen big changes even before your study. It sounds like the Nordic teams had made some changes to their practices. So can you talk a little bit about some of these policy changes and the actors that are driving that change? Yes. So one of the nice things about the ski wax story is that we can just do something about it pretty quickly. And we don't need governments to act to regulate it. We can just say, let's not use these chemicals. In a sense, fluoro waxes are non-essential uses of PFAS. We don't have to use them. And if we can't find substitute waxes that allow the same level of speed and high performance, well, that's okay because everybody's going to be using these new waxes. And this is precisely what we've seen at the local level with high school ski teams, with competitive collegiate teams at the national and international level, we're seeing the industry move away from fluorowaxes, which is great. Because fluorowaxes are just one small part of the story, we also do need to have robust regulations put into place. Ideally, we would just restrict the use of PFAS. We would just phase them out. But that's not what's happening currently. But we are starting to chip away at the use of these chemicals. And, you know, again, it's not a great regulatory approach when you have 4,700 chemicals to do it on a single chemical by single chemical basis. We call that the whack-a-mole approach. It's not very effective, but that's what's happening so far. And you do see action, particularly in the European Union, to restrict a number of the worst PFAS chemicals, the ones we know about. But again, there are all these substitute PFAS, all these PFAS we know very little about that are out there. And, you know, we're not testing for them and we don't know what they're doing to the environment or to our bodies. But we're starting the process, which is good. And states are starting to restrict the use of these chemicals. Like I mentioned, the state of Maine in 2019 banned the use of PFAS in food packaging in Maine. And other states did that as well, which is great. Because, of course, if it's in food packaging, like grease free deli wrappers and 
pizza boxes and microwave popcorn bags, people are potentially directly exposed through their food. So that's a good way to start limiting the universe of regulation and really start chipping away at PFAS exposures. The U.S. federal government hasn't set a binding drinking water standard, for example, for PFAS. So states are starting to do that. It would be nice if the federal government would do more so that states didn't have to come up with these laws on their own, but at least we're moving forward. And even though you have regulations at different scales and decision-making at different scales, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. So the nice thing is, is if a state acts, other states can adopt what they did. And then if a few states act, pretty soon the federal government is probably going to see or get pressure from the industry to standardize that, to say, look, just set a federal standard so that we don't have to do this piecemeal. Oh, this is what's happening in California. And this is what's happening in Washington. And this is what's happening in New York. And this is what's happening in Maine. You know, state action can catalyze federal action, which is good. And states and the federal government, they know what Europe's doing. And other countries that are setting up chemicals policies for the first time, they're just leapfrogging over the US and just adopting whatever Europe's doing. So there's action in at one level can actually lead to action at other levels or can start filling the scientific and regulatory gaps, which is a good thing. From a teaching standpoint, it's really nice to be doing this research and studying the environment in a state like Maine, where there is so much environmental policymaking going on and some really innovative advances in safer chemicals policy. So I spend time at the state capitol each legislative session testifying in support of safer chemicals policies as an expert scientist. And one of the most rewarding things is I encourage my students to also get involved. And each time I'm at a public hearing, at least one of my students is there too. Oftentimes they'll testify and you can just see the legislators really respond to the testimony of young people. They don't usually go to Augusta, Maine and testify publicly for many reasons. And it's so important to have those youth voices. And I've seen legislators really respond. They'll thank them so much for giving testimony and they'll ask them when they're going to run for the legislature and things like that. I also encourage students and help students understand how to effectively advocate. And there are opportunities for them to write to their legislators or to write letters to the editor or to write op-eds for the local paper about these topics so that they can have their voices be heard and so that they can understand the decision-making process and where they fit in. And it seems to be pretty rewarding for students. I often get feedback from them that they'll say like, I never knew how a you know bill became a law or I never knew that I could actually say something. I never knew that my voice would make a difference. And in a state like Maine, it really does make a difference. Legislators are very accessible and they really listen to their constituents. So that's been a really great part of this whole process is to focus on the science, but also to be able to focus on the policymaking. Chemistry and chemistry policy seems very complex. And so the study, I think, is exciting in that you can immediately see an application and a way in which individual action can have an impact. I think it's just very exciting to see students working on applied science and to see that be a part of your teaching pedagogy. I think if you don't have that part of it, then a lot of it becomes doom and gloom. And in an environmental studies program, or perhaps programs like the ones that you're in, if you're always just telling the bad stories and the downer stories and the stories of contamination or the stories of climate change or the stories of biodiversity loss, and it's all bad, you know, that really has a psychological effect on students. And it's important for them to understand the problems. And I incorporate a lot of science into my classes, but I think it's all also important for them to know that they can be part of the solution. And that's what's really rewarding about teaching in an applied discipline like this is to get to a point where students can feel like they actually made a bit of a difference. And they honestly have. I have honestly had legislators speak to my students and say, your work made a difference. So that's really, really rewarding. And some of my students have gone on to advocacy positions at environmental groups and other types of organizations where they've been motivated to keep up that type of work. So that's been really fun to see. It's exciting to see that scientific work so quickly translated into clear political actions like serving as an expert witness and visiting your legislature and advocating for policies. So it's a hopeful piece of a story about high-risk, persistent chemicals. Yeah, there's a lot that's horrifying about this story. 
And it really is very, very serious because these chemicals, you just can't regulate them. They're so persistent and they just escape and go everywhere and they're already in our bodies and things like that. But when you're thinking about making change and trying to improve the system, you have to limit things. You have to just start with your corner of the world or start with one set of chemicals or one set of impacts and just try to make a difference. And then you just hope that that snowballs into more action. You know, I'm a very optimistic person. I think getting involved helps with that optimism. It helps you realize that, you know, you can be part of the solution. And this is a really, really serious problem, but we can pay attention to people who are impacted. We can pay attention to the health impacts and we can work really, really hard to try to minimize exposures. And so I think combining science with decision-making is really, really important. You also talked about disposal, which I thought was interesting, having a basement full of ski wax myself, that it's not just that we have to change the way we're waxing now, but we also have Mm -hmm. chemicals to dispose of. So can you tell us what an individual skier can do to eliminate PFAS and fluorowaxes from the impact of their skiing? Yes. So individual skiers obviously play a big role. And we know that it's not just in competitions, but it's also recreational skiers who probably have been using floral waxes. And the first thing I would say is don't feel guilty that you are a big part of this global contamination problem because it's really not about you. It's about much bigger forces. The world is moving away from floral waxes, which is good. So definitely I would encourage people to stop using floral waxes. There are hydrocarbon alternatives that work basically almost as well. There are all these innovations in ski wax technology that are becoming more and more available. You can actually go to the U.S. Ski and Snowboard website and they have a list of alternatives, but even probably just Googling it, you could come up with some alternatives. So I would say stop using the floral waxes in particular. There's also the problem of disposal of existing floral waxes that people may have in their basements, in their wax kits. I know the Colby Nordic Ski Team has just boxes of old waxes, some of which they may not even know exactly what it is. Unfortunately, we don't have a good way to dispose of PFAS containing products safely. And we don't really know how to destroy them so that they don't become a hazard. I would not throw them away because you don't want them to end up just in your local landfill or be incinerated in your local incinerator or whatever your waste disposal method is. I think it's going to take some guidance from municipalities, states, and the industry, as well as you know the country to really figure out what to do with those waxes. So I don't have the answer, but I think it's a major problem. We shouldn't just be tossing our old waxes because they're going to end up in the environment. If they're in a landfill, if they get burned in an incinerator or something like that. So look for guidance on how to dispose of what you already have. And then I would say, you know, if you're interested, get involved in some of these public campaigns to try to phase out these chemicals and see what's happening in your state. Is there an environmental group that's working on this or a public health organization that's working on this? Are there some legislative initiatives that are going on? Is there some public awareness raising going on in your town, in your state? Get involved and see if collectively we can really put a lot of pressure on decision makers to ultimately phase out these chemicals. Well, that's great. I think that's a nice way to end our discussion. So thank you so much. Optimistic work on chemical policy with EdgeFX. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. And for giving us a clear action plan for individual (laughs) cross-country skiers to have a more sustainable skiing experience. It's been wonderful talking to you Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. That was Claire Sullivan and Gail Carlson in conversation. Claire Sullivan is a PhD candidate in the Geography Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an editor for EdgeFX. Dr. Gail Carlson is an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program and director of the Buck Lab for Climate and Environment at Colby College. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Carly Griffith and me, Justin Huckleberry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter, at EdgeFXMag. 
And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.